This is One on One with Joe O'Donnell. Thanks for tuning in. First episode in quite some time after a long hiatus, back and hopefully better than ever. That's right. If you're a first-time listener, you might be thinking this is episode one. Not correct, my friend. Back in the day with the Iowa Wild, during the pandemic, actually, I started this podcast up, and then it went to bed for a long time. Glad to bring it back. Hopefully you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. And, of course, don't forget to subscribe, to like, to comment, to rate. Tell your friends and family. I know there's a lot of podcasts out there, but hopefully I'll carve a little niche and you'll enjoy our conversations uh, with some folks from around the hockey world. One-on-one with Joe O'Donnell is just like it sounds. It's me and a hockey guest. Whether that be a former player, a reporter, a broadcaster, a scout, hockey operations executive, uh, the great state of hockey in Minnesota, so many people that you'll come across that are tied to and very passionate about the sport of hockey, or, of course, my travels across the NHL meeting folks in the press box and spending time with with certain people from other organizations. And so I look forward to bringing you some of those conversations as this season moves along and hopefully into the offseason in future years as well. Uh, for those of you that don't know, I am the radio play-by-play voice for the Minnesota Wild now on a full-time basis. Moved our family into Edina, Minnesota over the summer just before school started. Uh, kids transitioning well, playing youth hockey in the great state of hockey, and it's certainly good Uh, Really great to be settled in and and finding some roots now, growing some roots here in Minnesota. And I had a chance the other day to take in the high school hockey tournament down at Excel Energy Center. Took our three boys down there. What an experience. I mean, all you can really say to that is just wow. You know, 15,000 plus people for high school hockey. Just amazing. Uh, The state of Minnesota's passion for the game at every level, right? I mean, whether it's might hockey all the way through high school hockey and obviously to the Minnesota Wild and beyond the college game thriving in Minnesota, women's hockey. I mean, it's just amazing just how this state embraces not only the winter weather, uh, but their love for hockey. Uh, So again, hope that you enjoy uh, the various episodes and conversations I'll have with different guests. As for the Minnesota Wild, they're currently holding down a playoff spot with less than 20 games to go, but they'll begin life without Kirill Kaprizov for a few weeks Team leader in goals, points, shots, multi-point game. Uh, And don't discredit or or forget or overlook the work ethic factor that Dean Evison so often talks about Kaprizov's leadership and his work ethic and how for a bona fide superstar, he competes his butt off on a nightly basis. So he'll be sorely missed uh, anytime you take away, like I said, one of the team leaders in almost every offensive category, seventh in the NHL in goals, fifth in power play points um, across the NHL. It'll be a big loss. It'll be interesting to see how the Wild sort of steady the ship, hopefully stick with their structure, keep playing good defensive hockey, find a way down the stretch to punch their 12th ever Stanley Cup playoff appearance. If they can do so, it'll be the 10th time in the last 11 seasons, the fourth straight year that they reach the Stanley Cup playoffs. Real quick, just on Kaprizov to put things in perspective, just how good has this guy been in his short time in the NHL? through 200 career National Hockey League games. Of all the players currently playing, so all active players through 200 career games, Kaprizov posted 113 goals. The only player with more, Alex Ovechkin. So the second most career goals through 200 games amongst active players, Kirill Kaprizov, and Alex Ovechkin, the only player above him. Pretty remarkable stuff as we continue to uh, just be impressed on a nightly basis by number 97. But again, the Wild going to have to... uh, pick up their bootstraps, and try and punch their playoff ticket, it appears, without him for a couple of weeks. All right, I digress from that, and we turn our attention now to Frank Saravalli. He's my guest here on this episode. 
He works for Daily Faceoff. He is the president of the Professional Hockey Writers Association. We'll talk about the evolution and the growth of Daily Faceoff and how that site has become a content monster in the hockey world. We'll talk about breaking stories and what that's like for an insider like Frank. We'll also spend some time talking about the Minnesota Wild, the outstanding season that the Boston Bruins are having, and just how good Connor McDavid has been this year. And Frank's got some pretty interesting uh, things to say and and sort of putting McDavid's success this year in perspective. It is certainly uh, something that, you know, we haven't seen in this league in a long time as far as Connor McDavid and his and his production on a nightly basis. So a lot to get to with Frank Saravalli. Again, thanks for tuning in. Like, subscribe, rate, comment, tell your friends and family. Appreciate it. This is One on One with Joe O'Donnell. Great to be back and get this podcast going again. Without further ado, here is Frank Saravalli. My guest on this episode of One on One with Joe O'Donnell is Frank Saravalli from Daily Faceoff Hockey Insider and President of Hockey Content. Also serves as president of the Professional Hockey Writers Association, longtime NHL insider. Frank, thanks for joining me. Yeah, Joe, pleasure to be with you. Always good to hang with a Philly guy. I like that very much. Uh, Good to know you're still out on the East Coast. Of course, Philadelphia making some news recently. We'll get there in a minute. Uh, Tell our listeners where they can find you on Twitter and and obviously Daily Faceoff as well. Yeah, Twitter, my username is Frank underscore Saravalli, and and dailyfaceoff.com is sort of our hub for everything. We've got a daily show Monday to Friday at 12 noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, half an hour of pure hockey talk. That's on YouTube uh, with some great graphics and and everything that you'd come to expect from a full-blown live TV show. I got a podcast twice a week on Mondays and Fridays called the DFO Rundown. You can get that wherever you get your pods. And another weekly one-on-one interview series that I started this year. It's a podcast audio only version that's called Frankly Speaking that drops on Wednesdays. So certainly a full slate, uh, full schedule, Joe. And uh, it's there's always a lot going on in the hockey world. Makes sense, I guess, that you're president of hockey content around those parts of all that <laughs> content, huh? Yeah, I mean, if if I wasn't, I'd be scared for who is. I'd have yeah. to explain a lot every day. Yeah. Um, uh, real quick, before we get into some NHL stuff yesterday, I went to XL energy center in St. Paul and I watched the Minnesota state high school hockey mm-hmm. tournament, right? The boys were playing, I think it was quarterfinals. Um, uh, the hometown we live in now, Edina, uh, were in action. It was a barn burner. They went seven, six and I'm watching that game and it had the atmosphere of like an NHL game, like from a nerve wracking overtime playoff standpoint, it was crazy, right? Like probably 15,000 people in there. It just mm-hmm. made me wonder about, you know, the roots for you and, and the sport of hockey and high school hockey. And have you experienced anything like that before? Tell us sort of about, um, you know, maybe high school hockey uh, when you grew up or just any of those types of memories. So obviously on a way lowercase scale, not nearly the same sort of level of hockey, but um, yeah, did play growing up. I went to Holy Ghost prep in the Philly area and we had some incredible support. Uh, when I played, uh, we, my freshman year, we won the Flyers cup championship and played in the state final. And my senior year, we also went on a deep run as well. And for us, it's not the XL energy center, but like we, our local rink, you know, we'd pack 2,500, 2000 people in there on a nightly basis for a Tuesday game. Wow. And, and that was, um, so not quite the same, but also still really fun. And, I played like low level junior hockey as well uh, in the Philly, you know, mid Atlantic area. 
and nothing was ever really quite the same. The level of hockey was obviously way better playing junior and triple a, but nothing, the best memories I have from playing all come from playing high school hockey. Where'd your love of the game start? When I was a kid, um, my dad played, you know, in a sort of, you know, amateur way in, in the Philly area, sort of right on the heels of the Flyers winning their Stanley Cups in the early to mid 70s. And that's sort of where that fostered, you know, my love of the game. I started playing when I was four. Same thing for my brother. And we both he coached our Mike team and then sort of took off from there. And it's it's odd how I kind of ended up becoming a hockey writer. Like I I always knew I wanted to do something in hockey, but I just I wasn't entirely sure what that was. And I figured out, you know, sort of as a, a teenager pretty early on, 14, 15, like I like hockey. I'm somewhat good at it for my area and age group, but I have absolutely no shot of doing anything any further, playing hockey at any further level. So I kind of recognize that, which is important. Self-awareness is good. Uh, you know, I can judge by my ice time. Uh, I can make the team, but if I'm not playing a lot at this level, probably means I'm not heading on to the next one. And so when I was 14, I started actually writing for a, a local magazine that's in the rinks and it's, it doesn't exist anymore. It's called breakaway magazine. I don't know if you remember it. And, um, I just, I was writing that early in high school. I was like, this is what I'd like to do. And by the time I went to college, there was a person that had worked for that magazine that wrote like the back page column on the flyers. And he had a press credential to go to Wells Fargo center. And they, they said, look, this guy his wife's having a baby and because we don't pay him, she's like, you can't keep going to the games. Right. And so they offered me the credential. I was a freshman in college and I was living in the city and I was like, Hey, like this makes sense. This works. And so they said, the only requirement is you have to go to every home game. And I, so I was like, all right, that's a 45 game commitment. And when I got to the rink, I just, I started meeting everyone in the press box, anyone who covered the team from, the inquirer or the visiting writers that would be in from out of town, a Michael Russo that would come through the press box and you meet those, those people and you start networking and all of a sudden that turns into an internship. And then after that, it turns into a, a full-time job and it's kind of amazing how it all comes together. Well, I won't bog you down too much since I'm interviewing you here, but uh, my path is very similar in the regard that I knew I wasn't any good at hockey. I knew that I kind of wanted to stay involved or talk about it or be on Sports Center or something like that. And I, too, uh, actually wrote for uh, it was Center Ice magazine. Which there you go. Yeah, that was the, that was the rival. Yeah, there you go. And uh, so they're all so so for anyone in Minnesota listening, like those are like as you walk in the door of the rink and there's yep. just like a stack of them for free that you can pick up and read. And it's got like. They were, they were both published once a month and they've yeah. got all the happenings from, you know, minor hockey and, and like standings and, and write-ups all the way up through, you know, junior college and then NHL. It was sort of like a one-stop free publication. Yep. And those were the two competitors that were right next to each other on the rack. Yep. And I was covering the Phantoms at the time, like 2002-ish, um, but kind of a small world there. And then the networking part, right? So important. You know, whenever somebody, uh, an aspiring broadcaster, somebody wants to get in the, into the sport or any sport for that matter, asks me, like, what's your advice? I'm always like, get your reps however you can, right? Whether it's writing for a free magazine, whether it's um, doing demo tapes, calling games off your TV, and then at the same time, network. 
because more people you meet, better chance you have of uh, latching on somewhere someday. So kind of kind of crazy yeah. that you went through a lot of those same things, just a little bit of a different part of the profession. Yeah. And so for me, I never really envisioned myself being someone that talked on TV or um, I, I always wanted to be a writer. And yeah. so uh, for me, like, I don't know what it was like for you growing up in the Philly area, but like, I absolutely idolized the Philadelphia Daily News. It's It's something that every day in my house, my dad would bring home and read. They'd all like at work, him and his brothers would all sit there at the lunch table and read it. And so for me, from the time I was like five or six, that was the place. It was like, if you're going to be at a, at a newspaper, that's the place. Yeah. And so I sort of set my path on, I want to work at the daily news of all places. I became an intern there for a whole year. And the funny thing is at the end of that year, Joe, I was graduating school. They said, we, we love what you've done here but we don't have a job for you. And so I, I actually went to New York and went to get my master's at Columbia. I was like, I think I had made my second tuition payment and the paper called and they said, Hey, I know you're not going to believe this, but our flyers writer just quit. Do you have any interest in leaving school to come interview? Who was that at the time? His name was Ed Moran. Oh yeah. He went to go coach division one women's rowing at UMass Lowell. He just had a change of heart, uh, a midlife crisis and said, I can't be a, a newspaper writer covering hockey anymore. I got to do something more. And his loss was, was my gain. And I, you know, I, it was right at the start of training camp. I stepped in the middle of training camp to cover the flyers and never looked back. Was that the old frequent flyers column? That was, that was my column. Yeah. There you go. I remember that. Well, Frank Saravalli joining me here from Daily Faceoff. Uh, Frank, I, I, and I promise for a lot of our Minnesota listeners that it won't be all Philadelphia talk <laughs> here, but, you know, the Flyers making the move uh, just recently here, relieving Chuck Fletcher. Yeah, that's the tie to Minnesota. Yeah, and and obviously, you know, Wild fans know Chuck very well from his time being the GM here with the Wild. Uh, I guess my question for you would be, why now for the Flyers? It's a good question, and it's one that I've asked as we're talking on the morning of the decision. I, I think the larger question from the fan base in, in Philadelphia, Joe, would be if you thought that you were going to make this decision and if you know, everyone kind of had a feeling this was coming. Like I think if you, you asked Chuck Fletcher months ago, he would probably agree that the way the season has unfolded, that this would likely be coming, that if indeed that's the case – then why not make a change before the trade deadline? And I guess the argument could be, well, no one really envisioned this deadline happening the way that it would in that the Flyers don't end up getting anything for James Van Reems. Like that was really one of the surprises of the deadline. And I don't think it, I don't think it hastened the move, but I think it, it certainly was the cherry on top um, in terms of the toxicity that had built up in the marketplace. Like, I don't know if, people around the NHL would, would recognize this, but there were like protests scheduled for Saturday outside of Wells Fargo center to protest, like the move, like you got to do something here. The, the fan base was fed up. And I actually feel for Chuck in a lot of ways, because I think there's more to come out to the story, but I think the flyers even acknowledge this. I've never seen a team do this in a press release, but they said that there were a lot of outside challenges and circumstances that impacted his job. And I think the Flyers as an organization have been a mess for the last number of years. And he was trying to sort of navigate within that that made his job incredibly difficult. 
let's circle back to the trade deadline for a moment and give us a few of the winners in your mind, teams that came out on top. I think teams like Boston uh, making that extra move to get Tyler Bertuzzi after really fitting in nicely with Dmitry Orlov and Garnet Hathaway. I thought um, that was this team hasn't really lost all year. In fact, Thursday night against the Oilers was their first loss in regulation this season when leading after two periods. So not only do they generally not lose, they hold leads and they barely lose on home ice 26, three and three. Uh, that team has been a juggernaut all year. So to to beef that roster up even more, I think was incredibly impressive. I like the New Jersey Devils from a longer term view, getting Timo Meyer. Sure, he's going to help now. And maybe he'll help you chase down the Carolina Hurricanes for the top spot in the Metro when it's all said and done. But really, it's about the next five to seven years with guys like Jack Hughes and his continued growth and Nico Heischer, the Swiss connection there with Timo Meyer. And he just fits on so many levels. He gives the Devils a different look, a different heft, uh, a different, you know, way to attack. And I think that's incredibly important, especially to add a volume shooter like Timo Meyer is. Um, you know, I think in in some different ways, I, I was a little bit. I don't know that there are any winners in the West. Like I, I don't know that I look at one team and say, "Wow, they vastly improved their chances." It was sort of weird how the deadline unfolded with the East and this impending steel cage death match that seems to be coming in the playoffs yeah. and the West where all these teams are sort of tightly bunched. No one has really separated themselves. And I think sort of in the back of everyone's rearview mirror is the Colorado Avalanche who are just beginning to get healthier as the defending Stanley Cup champs who also in their own right had a bunch of cap space and didn't really do anything with it. You mentioned the Bruins fastest team ever to 50 wins two part here. How good are they? And who's the biggest threat to Boston in the East? Oh, they're good. And like, I don't think it would surprise anyone, especially with the season that Linus Olmark is having in net. Like everyone is focused on Connor McDavid and rightly so he's, he's putting together one of the best individual seasons uh, well, I think one of the top three individual seasons in NHL history. That said, in any other normal year, Linus Olmark would be in the Hart Trophy conversation as the goaltending version of the Triple Crown winner. Goals against average, save percentage, wins, and he also leads all goalies in goals this year, which is kind of amazing. <laughs> so he he would be in, in, in heart trophy conversation for sure. If not for Connor McDavid, having already locked up the award. So they've got the goaltending. I think their defense has been significantly improved in the last two deadlines with Hampus Lindholm and, and now Orlov. And yeah. like, when you talk about their top six on the back end, like they're a team that, the player that might be a healthy scratch in the playoffs, whether that's Grizzly or whoever it might be, would probably be on a top four or Clifton probably be in a top four on, on 15 other teams in the league. Right. So they've, they've got an embarrassment of riches there on the back end. And then also up front, they can beat you any number of ways. They can beat you with their brains. Uh, they can beat you with their, their skill like Pasternak, uh, the brains I was thinking Bergeron and they can also beat you in a gritty game if you want to play like Brad Marchand or Tyler Bertuzzi. So they can beat you any which way. And I think that's 
that's the mark of a true Stanley Cup contender and playoff team. Yeah. And I'm not sure when, you know, I haven't checked to see when Nick Felino or Taylor Hall. Probably in the playoffs. Yeah. Taylor Hall is dealing with a knee injury and Nick Felino also has a knee brace on. Those guys are both at the time of the deadline in the four to six week range. Yeah. Um, Is there a threat to them in the playoffs out East? Um, I would say, yeah, like just trying to get through that Atlantic division, that Toronto Tampa series is going to be interesting. And, you know, I understand the improvements that the Leafs have made. Uh, I'm still not betting against Nikita Kucherov, Steven Stamkos, Braden Point, Victor Hedman, and Vladis, uh, um, in net Andre Vasilevsky. That five, those five guys there, like that's the one thing that as much as Toronto improved, I still think to get through that gauntlet in the East, they lose the goaltending battle every time on paper. Yep. And I, I think they lose defensively as well against both Tampa and Boston. So, you know, I like Tampa to get through if we're sort of mapping this out and Tampa Boston is, you know, that that's a real threat. Like that's a team that's been to three Stanley cup finals in a row to say that Boston is going to have an easy time getting through that. I, I think would be unrealistic. John Cooper benched three of the game's best players for an entire mm-hmm. period uh, a week or so ago. What did you make of that? And is there another coach in the NHL? I was trying to think maybe Daryl Sutter that would have enough cachet, enough stones, uh, enough on his resume to pull off a move like that. I think what was most disappointing about that from a Tampa Bay perspective is that you bench those players in the third period in a game in which you clearly don't have it. And then you come out the next day in Carolina and get absolutely waxed by a six, nothing score. Yeah. So if you're going to take those guys and, and sit them out, cause you know, you're playing back to back and then that's the response. That was a little bit eyebrow raising to me. I think, look, even John Cooper, even he's approaching later this month, 10 calendar years in the job, which is almost unheard of. There's, you can count the number of guys on one hand that have been in the job that long in NHL history. You know, recently Lindy Ruff and Barry Trotz, it's, it's, there's not very many, but even then, and even after all of the success that you've had, guys still get tired of hearing the same voice and the same thing over and over again. Even if John Cooper is sort of the master motivator in the NHL, at some point that, that gets tiring. And so I'm not saying they tuned it out, but yeah, does he have the cachet? Of course he does. And he has the full support of his general manager, but you can only go to that well so many times. It's a great point. I feel like earlier, I didn't want to cut you off. Did I hear you say that Connor McDavid this year is having one of the three best NHL seasons ever? Yes. And and I believe that to be the case. I mean, I I, I truly think that as... Special as this season has been for McDavid, there's like McDavid fatigue because yeah, we, we don't know how else to night. describe it. And yeah. and he does it with such regularity. Like for the longest time now, and I'm not sure if you're a gambler, I'm not, but we have a gambling segment on our show every day. And like to get Connor McDavid to to even place like a somewhat reasonable bet, you have to bet that he's going to score two goals or more. Wow. Per night. Right. It's just automatic. He he still has 16 games to go and he already has 54 goals and 124 points. So the, the unquestioned best player in the world, I believe, 
has already with 16 games to go set new career highs in goals and points and is closing in on assists. He's nine away from a uh, 10 away from a new career high in assists. What's his ceiling? Is there a ceiling? Well, so let's just talk about pace for this year. He's on pace, I believe, for 68 goals. Oh, my gosh. And he's on pace. Frank, he never had 40 before, right? He had 44 last year, hit 41 a couple years before that. But never gotten to 50. Yeah. So when you consider the era and you consider the the, I think there's only 10 players in NHL history who have hit 150 points in a season – you you do you go back and you do the math and you you can make this all relative put everyone on a level playing surface this season if he tops 150 points like quite literally be will be one of the most special ever it's amazing and i guess to that a lot of it is the high scoring nhl so let me shift there for a second do you like the way the game's trending the fact that you know last year there were so many defensemen having record seasons um, you know, I think it was like six or seven guys with 70 points from the blue line. Something had been done since the nineties scoring was up and all, you know, all the NHL stats you see on the media site that they generate for the broadcasters and such are showing like, Oh, it's the first time since 1992. This has happened. It's the first time since 96 that this has happened. Like we're getting a Renaissance to, you know, 25, 30 years ago, as far as goal scoring goes, do you like that? I do. Uh, I think it's great for the game. I also, I still don't think it's quite fair to compare the two eras because, you know, even as, as much as the offensive numbers have come up, they're still not really anywhere close to the peak that they were in the eighties. And I think it's also just an eye test thing. Like if you're an old school North stars fan, go back and watch, you know, some tape of your favorite game. It, It doesn't even look like the same sport. Like look at the way the goalies are, are first off, look at their equipment and then second, look at their movement and how much empty and open net there is and look at their size. Um, so the game is being played at a faster level than ever before. I think what's happened is for the longest time, uh, coaches figured out how to, so there's this is a two-part thing. Uh, we So I, one part is I just started on the goalies. And so for the longest time, goalies had an advantage and now shooters have the advantage it's technology, it's, it's equipment, it's shot, it's all those things. So the shooter has the advantage and the goalies haven't figured out a way to, to match that quite yet. And the second thing is coaching and, and defense, you know, with the rule changes and how much the game has opened up, coaches haven't figured out a way to properly defend yet. And it, it'll happen and it'll eventually catch up and slow down. But for right now, the shooters and skaters have a real advantage. Yeah. And honestly, it's going to be, you know, coaches drive themselves crazy at night in some of these six, five games are, you know, Dallas Buffalo 10, four, the final score. Um, even though the stars win that game, I'm sure their coaches aren't pleased. They gave up four and, you know, Don Granado is probably burning that tape in Buffalo. Um, mm-hmm. you know, coaches, goaltenders, it's a tough, like I look at power plays now, the other night, uh, the Wilder playing uh, in Winnipeg, and Winnipeg's got a 19% power play. That's 23rd in the league. I mean, a couple mm-hmm. years back, a 19% power play would have been top five probably. Like, the goal was to get the 20% and 80% mm-hmm. on the PK. Like, the numbers are really skewed a lot of ways the last handful of years, and 
I think to your point, it, it is fun for the fans. I think it makes it exciting every night you show up. You're not really sure what you're going to get. Are you going to get a 0-0 game like Winnipeg and Minnesota the other night, which was actually really exciting? Or are you going to get uh, a game in which, you know, it's 10-4 or 6-5? Like, that's awesome. Question for you on the Wild, Frank, and I appreciate your your time here today. Um, how are the Wild viewed nationally? So I would say that, um, I, I can't really tell you how they're viewed nationally, but my view of the wild is I am so incredibly impressed at what they've been able to accomplish given the salary cap constraints that they've been under. So if you had told me, you know, a couple of years back when the wild made the, you know, sort of franchise shaking decision to buy out Zach Parise and, and Ryan Suter that they would be able to be this competitive, still be in a playoff spot, still challenging for the division lead, given that they're starting with a short deck, I, I'd say you're crazy. But not only that, but they've been able to do it this year specifically with space to spare. Like to think that they were at the trade deadline this year and could basically buy themselves a couple picks and then more or less take those picks and turn them into, you know, the deadline moves that they made with Oscar Sundquist and Marcus Johansson, and then ultimately John Klingberg on the back end, which I thought was a really smart value buy. Like if you wait until 2 p.m. Eastern, the yeah. last hour of the deadline, and and John Klingberg is still sitting there available, and you have the cap space where you don't have to run him through a third-party team, and you really only have to give up a fourth-round pick to try him out for a few months for a playoff run – like, I think John Klingberg has weaknesses in his game, but I also think the biggest weakness has been in his own head. It's been a crisis of confidence. So if you get John Klingberg, you put him in a new environment, a chance to earn his next deal on a playoff team and really show something, you've given him an avenue and a window to reboot his career that he otherwise wasn't getting in Anaheim. And so that, like, why wouldn't you roll the dice and make that choice? But you only can do that, Joe, if you have the cap space to do it. And you just bought yourself the assets to really go go trade for these guys. You didn't lose anything in the end. And you still have $5 million left in cap space when it's all said and done. That's what they're going to finish with. I thought it was That's a pretty masterful job by Bill Guerin, to be honest. Unbelievable. So now this team, and, and I know that everyone's, you know, sort of stomach is in their throats with this Kirill Kaprizov injury and a seems like they avoided the absolute worst. And I think it's really, it's difficult to envision a deep playoff run without him uh, and without him being at 100%. I think it was Michael Russo the other day that made the joke uh, that when all this is said and done, Kirill Kaprizov's legs are going to be tired because he's been carrying this team on his back. Um, but I believe that to be fact. And this team, you know, after the Boldy extension and some of the other moves that they made, they're going to be equally well positioned next year to go out and do the same thing. I think there's going to be an interesting sort of reshuffling this summer, you know, saying goodbye to a, a guy who's been a franchise cornerstone for a long time and Matt Dumba. And then whatever other changes may be made, you saw the Jordan Greenway move, of course, uh, that signaled that he was not part of their long-term plans from a cap perspective that they also now have the flexibility a little bit to, to maybe change up a couple pieces and continue to be as competitive as they have been as they just weather this storm. And guess what? 
I've got some good news, I think, on the cap front. And that that is, I believe, and, and no one has reported this with any certainty, but my belief is that the salary cap is going to go up in a significant way this summer. That'd be huge for Minnesota, as you just alluded to. When, as when, those buyouts ratchet up two more million bucks for these final two years. Right. When when does the hockey world get more clarity on stuff like that? It's as far, typically as far the as... week of the draft, okay. which unfortunately is like a while from now. But this year in particular, I think it's actually going to come down to the wire because we've got a new executive director taking over at the NHL Players Association and Marty Walsh. He's going to be essentially negotiating this for the first time. Um, Commissioner Gary Bettman has, has acknowledged that uh, the players and the revenue growth have whittled this uh, escrow debt down to a very minimal amount. And I just I can't see a path forward for the NHL where anyone, whether it's owner or player, thinks that keeping this salary cap artificially frozen for one more year when you've basically reached the finish line of the debt makes any sense. So there's going to be owners breathing down the commissioner's neck saying, hey, you you got to get this ball rolling forward. And whether it's a three or three and a half million dollar increase followed by a larger one the summer after, that it makes no sense to have a fourth consecutive season of a frozen or flat cap. One more thing on the Minnesota wild. You mentioned Matt Dumba. You mentioned how big of a piece he's been to the organization. It's not often that a player will play out his deal. And if that is the case with how Dumba's tenure ends, no trade being moved elsewhere, no extension coming because of their cap constraints. Can you think of a, a similar situation recently in the NHL where a player with an organization as long as Matt Dumba has been with the Wild, drafted back in 2012, been with them his whole career, will essentially just play out the string again. If that's how this all unfolds and then, um, you know, essentially have to find a new suitor in the summer. Yeah, I mean, it, it happens. I don't want to say with regularity, but there is, you know, you don't have to go back super far to find a few, like the one that comes to mind. And it's a bit of a different situation because they were still competing for his services. But like John Tavares, for instance, you know, right. obviously on a different scale, but drafted by the Islanders, spends his whole career there and then gets to free agency. And then the first opportunity ends up walking for, for Matt. It's a little bit different because they also, they bought a couple years of unrestricted free agency with that contract that was signed back in 2018. So Honestly, I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And I think I really like the approach from the wild as well that for whatever reason, teams in the NHL are not comfortable with having a player play out his deal. And I don't necessarily understand it because there's this thought process of, well, you know, you got to get something back for this guy. And if your team is still in a playoff spot, what does that mean? Like you signed him to a five-year, $30 million contract in 2018 What's wrong with him completing the entirety of the contract? That's what the contract is. Yeah. So, but that's not how it works in the hockey world. People, you know, sort of look at that differently and say, can't believe you didn't get anything for him. And it's like, well, no, we got five years and $30 million out of him. That's what we got. And after that, we're going to shake hands and and wish Matt Dumba all the best for being a leader, for being a, a guy who, who worked his ass off and and then move on. For years, daily faceoff was sort of the spot for I, I know a lot of scouts and GMs and broadcasters to get the lines from teams, right? Mm -hmm. Who are, who is the latest uh, power play unit for the Islanders or the Canucks second D pairing as as 
you know, media folks were preparing for games. Now it's really grown. The evolution is crazy. You've got uh, goaltending experts like Mike McKenna. You've got all these insiders joining the group. Tell us a little about the the evolution of Daily Faceoff. Yeah, thanks, Joe. It's been fun to, to be part of it and watch the content side of it grow because we already had, before I joined in, an asset and, and valuable tool that not just media people, but also scouts and GMs use on a regular basis to get the latest lineups. Like we were actually thinking about launching a, a side business where we basically take all of our info with the lines and turn them into like written lineup cards for scouts to take to games. So they don't have to then sit there and scribble it all out that they already have it right there in front of them. Um, but that that's sort of the feedback we were getting from people in, in the hockey world. And so now I think, it's been awesome to grow that the content side of it. It's been harder to get people out of their, uh, their comfort zone than I originally thought. Like people have the line combinations or the starting goalies page. They have it bookmarked somewhere and they don't necessarily bring themselves back to the homepage. And so that part has been a little bit harder to change people's habits, but we've seen some really impressive growth. And, and you go through a, a period like the trade deadline where you know, you're smashing site traffic records and, and everything's bananas that, you know, kind of, you know, pumps some, some confidence in you that you can continue to grow. So yeah, it's been, um, it's been fun on that end. We're a, you know, still a somewhat small lean team and uh, we're just trying to punch above our weight in terms of, you know, competing with some of the legacy media outlets that have staffs that are two to six times what we are. Is there an up and comer in the industry that impresses you, whether they be a daily face-off or otherwise somebody that you've gotten to know that you think is on the rise in your industry? Oh man. I, I, I don't, I feel so uncomfortable answering that. Cause I don't, I don't want to name any names. Like I, there's so yeah. many people that I think so highly of uh, in this business and just putting on my professional hockey writers association hat That's for right. a second. <laughs> like I just, I, I watch and read every day and you know, whether it's, you know, people at the athletic, uh, whether it's people in the blog world that haven't even gotten an opportunity yet. Um, I've really in the last number of weeks been following closely what's happening in, in women's hockey and, and the addition that we're making to our organization, launching our first ever women's hockey chapter, um, for an organization that's been around for 57 years already. Um, and so, I've had my eye on it all. And there's so many people out there, you know, putting together impressive, impressive work with, without the resources. Like that's, what's impressive to me is people that don't have the travel budget, people that don't have uh, the massive following that make your head turn with some, you know, ingenious work, something that they've uncovered, whether it's, you know, on the data side or whether it's, um, on the content side that really, you know, makes your jaw drop and that we're seeing that uh, it's never been simultaneously more difficult and more easy. If that makes any sense to produce high quality content, you've got the path. And if you do good work, people find it. And, you know, you've got the ways to present yourself that you never have before, but at the same time, there's still all the regular and traditional barriers to entry. As I just mentioned that, it's a really interesting time to be a hockey reporter. Tell us a little bit more about the new women's chapter of the professional hockey writers association. Yeah. So this came together and it's still actually being formulated, but um, this came together in the last few weeks 
uh, basically from an idea at our meeting in Florida at the all-star weekend, one of our members suggested, Hey, we should contact the PHF, the premier hockey federation to, to gauge their interest as to whether or not they'd like to have media formally vote on their awards. That's a service that we provide, of course, to the NHL with the Hart Nars, Calder, Selkie and Bing trophies every year, as well as the Con Smythe and the all-star teams. But would they be interested in a similar type setup? And so when the answer was yes, then it was let's find the authentic women's hockey writers that have been active in that space and have been crushing it for the last number of years and find out if they're interested in joining our organization. It's a big step forward in the sense that we've sort of always been traditionally focused on covering the NHL. And that's where all of our uh, members come from. We have 278 members. They all cover the NHL. So to take a, a different path and to add a women's hockey chapter was really important for us. I felt like the time was right. And it's not just going to be with the PHF, but we're hoping to eventually also form a relationship with the PWHPA and whatever comes out of uh, the new league that they're forming. And we just, we want to be able to support, recognize, promote, and celebrate all of the the people that have been doing a great job in that space for a long time and do it in a more formal way. As president of the Professional Hockey Writers Association, what's the most challenging part of that role? Dealing with complaints. Uh, my phone rings all the time, whether it's from someone that's upset with how some sort of media access plan went after a game or this team didn't do this or should have done that. Uh, I get a bunch of emails and phone calls on a weekly basis that are sort of mini fires to put out and just communicating. I've got my own full busy schedule and slate. And, you know, sometimes those things pop up and you either don't have the bandwidth to deal with it or, or um, you don't have a proper vehicle to deal with it. So um, that part is certainly hard. And sometimes it gets pushed to a week like this, like, a lot of people have been saying, hey, did you get a chance to chill out and relax after trade deadline? And it was, it was such a blur getting through not just that week, but the six weeks leading up to it that I kind of crashed over the weekend. But then this week, I've got all my normal shows again. And in the meantime, I'm dealing with an issue that we had in Buffalo. And I'm dealing with an issue uh, of trying to add this women's hockey chapter and all of the sort of you know legwork that goes into getting that done. So there's always something, Joe, like that's on the on the horizon that, you know, you're just trying to, you know, push the ball forward and and trying to lead. And um, yeah, at some point I will pass the baton to someone else and and say, here's a you know, pile of headaches for you for exactly no money. And then you get a request to jump on a podcast uh, with, you know, maybe a couple hundred listeners if we're lucky here in Minnesota and trying to hey. build up my <laughs> But for a Philly guy, I would say yes every single time. So it doesn't matter if it's my day off or what. Yep. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Um, breaking a story, Frank, what's the rush like? It, it certainly is an adrenaline rush. And I'll tell you that anyone that's done this for any period of time, your rush comes in. Oh, my God, I hope I'm not wrong. Yeah. And when you're out, when you put it out there and you're the only one out there and you're sort of you know, naked and alone on the internet for a few minutes until someone else confirms it, or, you know, uh, it becomes abundantly obvious that that's exactly what's going to happen. You know, sometimes we're running with 
shreds of information, meaning you know that this part of it's accurate, but you don't know, for instance, the other part of the deal or the other players traded in the deal. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of phrasing. And I've had some unbelievable help from the best to ever do it in Bob McKenzie. He took me under his wing at TSN and just such an amazing person to work with. Like he not only helped get me the job at TSN, but also once I got there, I could call him at any point and say, Hey, I'm hearing this. What would you do? And he would either like go above and beyond and make an extra call to help me and confirm it. And then even if that happened or didn't happen, he would say, he would like text me and say, this is how I would word it. And it basically just saves you from a lot of heartache. And sometimes something that you type or tweet may sound softer than it really is. Like I'm hearing or looks like, or sounds like, or, or something that, you know, lets everyone know that you you're on the case, but doesn't necessarily stone cold hammer it just to kind of leave you a little bit of wiggle room. As someone once told me, you never want to be dead, right. And that's something that I've always kept in the back of my mind. Like I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm one guy. I don't have a team here that I'm dealing with in terms of insiders trying to break news. I don't, I don't have a team of three at TSN or a two at Sportsnet or, or 30 at the athletic. It's just me and it's a 32 team league. So there's also a recognition there, Joe, that I, I can't be everywhere at once and I can't get everything at once. So I, I try my best and I try and keep tabs. And it's funny, a team like Minnesota Michael Russo, he's going to win 99 times out of a hundred. Yep. The guy's got it covered like a blanket. So, you know, certain teams and certain markets, you just have to look at a little bit differently. What's the opportunity there? Wrapping up with Frank Saravalli here, one-on-one with Joe O'Donnell, trying to get the podcast back and rolling. Frank, kind enough to join me. Uh, Of course, you can check out his work at dailyfaceoff.com. Gave you the Twitter handle earlier. Check out his podcast, all of his content there at Daily Faceoff. All right, Frank, real quick, a little rapid fire. First thing that comes to mind for a couple of these questions, all right? Mm-hmm. Favorite NHL road city to visit? Montreal. Your favorite end-of-the-year award? The Masterton. Really? Why? That's our baby. That's the one that we vote on. We determine, we pick one nominee from all 32 teams, and I just like what the award represents. It's not It's not always the sort of comeback from injury award. It's Someone that's overcome a significant amount in their career or personal life to keep playing. And I'm always a sucker for a good story. Coach on the hot seat. Um, hmm. You can pass if you want. If you don't no, I, I, there's, there's a few. Uh, I would say coach on the hot seat. Brad Larson in Columbus has not quite worked out as well as everyone would think. Will there be an all-star game in five years? Yes. One rule change for the NHL. No icing on the penalty kill. You know what? They do that out here, youth hockey in Minnesota. drives. They've me been crazy. doing it, and it's a USA hockey rule. I oh. can't imagine. So think about all the players, Joe, that are going to come through the USA hockey program and all of a sudden get to the NHL or get to the AHL and have a, a complete get-out-of-jail-free card. Makes no sense to me. If you want to try and increase scoring a little bit more, you you're not allowed. It's never made sense to me. You're not allowed to ice the puck at regular strength, even strength. 
why would your team take a penalty and then all of a sudden you're allowed to ice it? But also change shooting at the empty net when you're shorthanded as well. But per, okay, you know yeah. I mean, just from like that standpoint, like teams are gung ho about just firing it down when you're short and there's the empty net in front of you. Yeah, I, I, but I think that's perfect. Yeah, it, there no. should be a risk in in doing that. Interesting. I hadn't thought about that. But again, just the other day, kids are playing out here in Minnesota. I'm like, I, it just doesn't make sense to me because, you know. Well, it doesn't make sense. So try, okay, so I coach 8U hockey here. Yeah. Might hockey. Why would you, so try explaining it to your kids uh, of what I just said. You take a penalty, you're penalized, and now you get to ice it. Yeah. I, they yeah, don't, they don't right, understand I, it. They I don't get never. it. And then now you take them to an NHL game and then they say, oh, that's an icing. And you say, well, no, like it, it's like kind of explaining, <laughs> okay, so I have an eight-year-old and I'm sure your, your kids, uh, you've had similar conversations. You go to a baseball game and like try explaining to a kid why when there's two strikes, you're able to foul the ball as many times as you want and it doesn't count. There's yeah. some things in sports <laughs> that are just not explainable. And this is one of them in hockey. I had not thought about that. Your favorite NHL player growing up. Eric Lindros. If you weren't covering the NHL, dot, dot, dot. I would be working in construction. Really? Yeah. my that's I'm the only person in my family that doesn't okay. work in as part of our family business. All right. Family One of business. the only people. And you went the other way. Did something totally different that not really anyone saw coming. Frank, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, I guess it's good news. You had bad weather out there and you couldn't go golfing and get some time away. You had to talk more hockey with me instead, but thank you so much for your time. Dailyfaceoff.com, hockey insider, president of hockey content, Frank Saravalli, also the president of the professional hockey writers association. Thanks so much. And I uh, really enjoyed this conversation. My pleasure, Joe. Great stuff there from Frank Saravalli from daily face off. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time on one-on-one -on -one with Joe O'Donnell.